2: help with them in our head
0: but they're probably not the questions that you want answered so
2: you know, writing them down for us is important because of our team over it.
0: let's get started
1: welcome to the bloodline
2: with lls i'm alicia and i'm lizette thank you so much for joining us on this
1: episode As you all know, Mother's Day is this month, a day when we celebrate the lives, experiences, love, and stories of our mothers, as well as other women who have played a huge role in our lives. I'd like to say a quick happy Mother's Day to my own mother, Angela Patton. Love you very much. (laughs) On today's episode, we have Kate Ersta, of course, as you could assume, a mother of two boys, Nick, who's eight years old, and Dom, who is four. Katie, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
1: We actually got your information through our social media department who came in contact with you. And they said how active you were, how much of an advocate you were. And so so we had to have you on the episode. So thank you for taking time out to join with us.
0: Well, it is an honor and I'm very, very excited to be here. So thank you guys. For our
1: audience, would you mind telling us and introducing yourself to us?
0: Sure, I can tell you a little bit about myself. So I actually was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma uh, four years ago and it's hard to believe it's actually been four years since that diagnosis. I received a stage four diagnosis and at the time my little ones, my boys that you had mentioned, they were four years old. Nick was four and my son Dom was four months old. And for many of you listening, I know that the whirlwind of diagnosis For me, it was the last thing that you ever expect to receive when you're 30 years old. And I just remember, and I'm sure that so many people, so many other fighters and survivors here can remember those first hours, those first minutes, those first days of your diagnosis are just what now, what next, and the worry and the the concern. And for me, I remember being surrounded by people who cared and for people who truly were were in my corner and who were fighting with me but feeling that solitude and that loneliness and i just remember thinking to myself i needed hope you know hope was so important to me and webmd wasn't giving it and everywhere i searched on google was scarier than i i could have imagined for myself and i found myself in a position of well if i if i can't find the hope then i need to create the hope and so that's when I really started to build just a social media story really around my fight. And we just created this idea of what we called Every Sweat Matters. And I know in the podcast, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into what Every Sweat Matters became, especially to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. But those, those first hours, those first minutes, those first days of, of just being diagnosed were the scariest, Where they were the hardest. And it wasn't until i had a plan of treatment that i really started to become a little bit more comfortable with this role of survivorship and this role of of cancer warrior and how were you diagnosed that's a really good question actually one that i think is so so important because i believe that my symptoms were actually in me for years before i officially was diagnosed um, I would have these itchy legs and I would need to scratch them until they bled or I just remember sitting on the couch watching TV with my husband and I would beg him to actually scratch my fingers because they were so itchy and I remember just thinking it was eczema or extreme dry skin. And then when Dom was born, I thought I had mastitis, um, which is a, an infection. And so I went to the doctor and he actually said to me, uh, you know, we'll just put you on an antibiotic and the antibiotic didn't clear it. And I also thought at a time, uh, I had bronchitis and I just couldn't catch my breath when I was going for a small jog. It was really hard for me to breathe. And so all of these symptoms sort of just laid in my system or, or weird, strange rashes that I would have, uh, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would be covered in night sweats and I was actually, I was breastfeeding, so I actually thought it was, I thought it was milk. And so I was finding all of these ways to to think that it was another thing without ever really thinking you're 30 and can have cancer. It's just not something that comes to your mind as a otherwise really healthy woman so I ignored a lot of the symptoms and it wasn't until the antibiotics for what I thought was mastitis didn't get taken away. And my lymph node under my armpit had grown to the size of about a tennis ball. So I had a very large lymph node and when they realized that the antibiotic wouldn't take it away, they, they had me taken for a biopsy. And on the biopsy table, I laid down And the woman who ran the biopsy said, Katie, do you have a cat? And I said, no. And she goes, I can roll out cat scratch fever. And she said, with 90% accuracy, I can tell you that we're dealing with a type of lymphoma. And I just laid there on the table and my life was otherwise normal. I I remember thinking before I went to that appointment of the to-do list that I had, how I really hoped that the appointment was going to be really quick because I needed to get to the grocery store. And I just remember going through the motion of, okay, I have to do this. This is such an inconvenience. I don't have time for this. And then when you're laying on that table, everything changes, everything changes. And you're not just Katie anymore. You're, you're Katie with cancer. And I just lay there on that table and everything stopped. The to-do list stopped. The demand stopped, the where I have to be, the other things that were so important, everything on that table stopped. And a couple of days later, my husband and I did receive the official diagnosis of lymphoma. And after I received my bone marrow biopsy, we discovered it was actually a stage four
2: diagnosis. Did you know what lymphoma was?
0: No, I had never heard because the truth is, and this is like... This is one of those things, too, that I think is really important for people to understand with blood cancer is not every cancer is, is pink. And so the only cancer I really had ever known is breast cancer. And so when I was diagnosed with a blood cancer, I, I just remember thinking, well, what's wrong with my blood? I've never had an issue with whatever they talking about. I'm not anemic. What do you what do you mean by that? and i really didn't understand the the whole science behind blood cancer and here's what i learned and what my husband learned blood cancer can impact anyone any age any gender it doesn't it doesn't matter and when my husband and i learned that when we understood that blood cancer can impact anyone it just chose me and it was my job to just fight it. It was my job to to know exactly what I had to fight for, what I had to live for my children who were needing me. And I just was going to take that opportunity to to just learn more about it. And when it was too much for me to take in, my husband would take that role. My husband became that, that person who would learn about the science behind it, the medicine behind it, um, what it was going to take to actually not just stage it but cure it. My husband took on that role ultimately of caretaker at 30 years
1: old. It's so important to have that support around you as, you know, as a patient because, like you said, you, it becomes too much. and mm-hmm. You need those people around you who will advocate for you and will take the baton. So you don't feel like you're in this all by yourself.
0: That's such a good point too that you bring up because I remember sitting in appointments and your brain is so, so focused on just survivorship. Just, okay, my job is to fight. And it became Mike's job to take in the information, to learn the information, to be that advocate, to be my spokesperson when he knew how I was reacting to treatments, when he knew that something wasn't right. And even my nurses became that as well. And I'll give you a prime example. I was around treatment four. I remember um, going to into treatment four, and I had 12 treatments. I had ABVD. And around treatment number four, my, my vision was blurry. Every treatment, I was dealing with severe blurry vision to the point where I couldn't keep my eyes open. And I was very vocal about it. My husband was just searching for answers. And he finally said something to a nurse. And the nurse said, this has nothing to do with the chemo treatment. It's actually her nausea medication. And it was because my husband was really proactive and it was because that nurse took that extra step to listen to my husband and to say, this is the issue that's happening. We were able to resolve the problem by switching that medication. So it's so important that if something doesn't feel right with your treatment, if something doesn't feel right with your healing, if you just aren't feeling that something, that gut feeling that you voice it and that you have somebody in your corner that if you don't know how to speak it they'll speak it for you
1: shared decision making is the thing that we're such advocates for you know here at lls because there are two experts in the room when you go into your appointments and it's You and the doctor and only you know what you feel and it's such a relief when you have somebody with you who can say okay well you know she's not feeling her best right now but I but I know that this is what's bothering her I know that you know her her vision has been a problem for a while Mm -hmm. and and to get that that decision made because both people are intimately involved
0: I was also really comfortable with my oncologist Having a good relationship with your oncologist and uh, an oncologist who is willing to go to bat for you, an oncologist is, who is willing to do the research, oh, an oncologist who is willing to listen is so, so important. You know, uh, the first time that I met my oncologist, Dr. Brian McLaughlin, and honestly, He was like six, seven, and I'm five feet tall. So he looked more like an NBA player than he looked like the man that was going to save my life. So the first time I saw him, the very, the very thing he said to my husband and I is my name is Dr. Brian McLaughlin. And my number one job right now is to eradicate this cancer. And he just had that look on his face. Like he meant business. That this this cancer didn't stand a chance, and there was this this feeling of I'm in the right place. That this man is going to he's going to save my life, and he wants to. It means something to him. I was not just another patient to Dr. Brian McLaughlin. I was somebody that he genuinely cared for, and that he was looking out for, and that was really important too. That's so true.
2: Now I know as a mother for a four month old. I was just looking for sleep. So I can imagine that for months you were thinking about sleep, you were thinking about feeding, you were thinking about a schedule. Yeah. How did this change your schedule with your two young boys? Oh my gosh, this is this is uh oh, this is kind of hard to talk about. I
0: haven't thought about this in a while. So When your kids are that young and you go into survivorship mode and when you go into fight mode, you start thinking about what if my children don't have me tomorrow? You know, what if I'm not here to kiss them goodnight? What if, um, what if they see me sick or what if they see me bald? And I remember thinking I really, no matter what, wanted to leave a legacy of some sort. Like I wanted them to know that I love them. And so at the time when my my son was that little, my husband saw the stress of cancer that was having on me. And he said, Katie, your only job, your only job is to fight this. Everything else I've got. And he ended up taking that role. Uh, I had to stop breastfeeding, obviously. He ended up taking that role of night feedings. He ended up taking that role of dropping off and picking up. Luckily, my son was actually in preschool at the time and my parents and my in-laws were really, really helpful. My sisters were amazing and they, they would help out around the house. And my husband also worked from home. So there was a lot of busyness in our house at any given time. And I would just rest when I would go through treatment and be down for a couple of days. I would rest and everything else was sort of taken care of. So we had these roles, everything sort of changed. My role at the time was to fight and and take care of my body and to take care of my health and to really get enough rest that I could be ready for the next fight, for the next chemo treatment. And his job was to take all of the things that were going on in the home life and organize them in a way that it was, it was taken care of, that it was one less thing that I had to stress about. And so that communication between us was so key. And a lot of people say when they fight cancer, lymphoma and they're going through treatment, it's sort of like being pregnant, like the nausea. And I don't know if it was quite like that for me, but I remember I would be down for a few days, usually about three or four days, meaning that I was just tired. Uh, the first couple treatments, I really couldn't see very well. I remember just really feeling weak and I remember needing to chug a lot of water to kind of flush it out of my system. I didn't have much of an appetite and then slowly I would start to feel better. But if there's one thing that I remembered to do throughout every treatment and I, I felt so empowered to do, and this was a big part of, of my social media, was I would I would sweat and I was impacted By actually Stuart Scott, who was the ESPN reporter. He had battled cancer four times. Uh, Yeah. So he had battled cancer four times. And in one of the videos that I watched of him sharing his story, he said that no matter how sick he felt, he would get up And he would do a, he would do a P90X workout. And if you know anything about P, I know. (laughs) And if you know anything anything about P90X, it's a very intense workout, but he said no matter how sick he was and no matter how much he had to modify that workout, it was his way of one upping the cancer. And I thought to myself, well, if, if he can do that, I can do that too. And that's just the outlook I had on cancer is just, I didn't want it to win. And so my way of beating it, my way of one upping it was to knock it out and I would knock it out by sweating. So I would get up before a chemo treatment and I would do a workout and I would just, usually it was like a yoga workout and then I would go to chemo treatment and I would walk down to my basement after chemo and I would actually work out and I would sweat and I was so sick and I was doing the the very like most gentle workout that you can imagine. But I started sharing that on Instagram and I started sharing that on my, on my Facebook page. And I just kept saying, I just believe every sweat matters. I just believe if you can sweat and you're blessed enough to sweat, you should sweat. And for when people are too weak, you should sweat for them to let them know that you're thinking of them, to let them know that they matter and they're being thought of. So for me, sweat became a way of prayer um, and it was a just way of working through the things that I was going through by working out. And it just became this this social media thing where people were like, Katie, I sweat for you. I really didn't feel like it. I really wasn't motivated to sweat. I did not feel like push and play on my workout or going to my workout. But then I thought of you and I didn't have an excuse so I was just like eradicating excuses that people were giving. And that really went hand in hand with my business as well. So my job was really about taking care of me. And taking care of me was about sweating. It was about just finding something bigger to sweat for. And so that's that's really what I did. Well,
2: thank you because you took care of you. But it sounds like you also took care of a lot of others besides your kids. You know, just that excuse that we have. I have it constantly. I don't like to sweat. <laughs> so I constantly have an excuse. Yeah. But to read what you're saying and to see what you're doing you're actually helping a lot of other people. So thank you.
0: Right, and I think it's very, very common for any mom, whether she's a cancer warrior or a caretaker, is that you cannot pour from an empty cup. There's that great analogy of when you're on a plane, if the oxygen masks come down, the, the the first thing you have to do is you have to you have to take care of yourself. You have to put your mask on first. And it is absolutely true. When you actually are taking care of yourself, you can better take care of everybody else around you. So it's about filling your cup first. It's about that little bit of time that you're saying, you know, I have a busy day. I have a crazy work schedule. I have a lot on my plate. I, I have treatments or, you know, my spouse is, is fighting cancer and, but I need to take care of me so I can better take care of everybody around me. And that's how I looked at treatment is I could embrace treatment with a better attitude, with a more positive state of mind. When I was actually reminding myself like, my feet just hit the floor, I'm still here, I'm good. I can get out of bed, I can walk, I am physically able, I'm going to, I'm going to sweat. And it might not be much, and it might not be pretty, and you know, it might not burn a lot of calories, but I'm still gonna do it, because it's the reminder that my feet hit the floor, and that I'm able to.
2: I just, I think that's a great point, that you have to take care of yourself, because we often talk to caregivers, and yes. we're always telling caregivers, well, to take care of your loved one, you have to take care of yourself first. And, of course, caregivers have that guilt. But for you to bring out that as a patient to take care of yourself, yeah, I think that's very important.
0: Yeah, and Mike would, too. So my husband, who you know, he was taking care of the boys during the day. He was still working a full-time job and we were so blessed. We had an amazing neighborhood and they were, they were dropping off meals throughout treatment and and my parents or his parents were coming over and they were helping with laundry or with Dom. Uh, but one thing that I made sure that Mike did, no matter what is throughout treatment, he kept playing his, you know, his, his adult league hockey. He's played hockey for years and that was really important for me to let him know, like, you're not going to stop this just because I'm under the weather. And my outlook was I'm under the weather. I, I have I have to fight this and I will have to fight it every other week for 12 rounds. But you need to take care of yourself. So you keep doing those things. You keep making time. You go out with your friends. You know, you, you have a little bit of downtime to yourself. You watch the pens game. You don't worry about you know, making sure that I'm taking care of all the time without taking care of yourself.
1: Was there any information or any resources that your husband was looking for in regards to support for himself?
0: I'll be honest with you. No, my husband, he just, he really kind of, he had friends that he talked to about it, but he was very, we, we talked to each other about it. It really wasn't, I'll be, I'll be honest with the LLS, I wish that I had a podcast like this. I wish that I had a resource like this. Because at the time, we didn't necessarily have a lot of resources. We had Brian McLaughlin. We had my oncologist. And we had the nurses. And we had our community of people who were fighting with us. But we didn't really have, we didn't really have anything that we, like, plugged into. And we were also very, very, like, cognizant of being around people who were lifting us up. So there were sometimes that that certain communities, we, we didn't go onto Facebook and look into those communities or we didn't participate in, in certain, um, they were like virtual, like uh, what are they called? Like web portals or whatever. We didn't do a lot of that because we found that we just really needed to be around that positive frame of mind
1: all the time we get the same feedback and that they wish that they had this resource, you know, this, available yeah. to them when they were first diagnosed. So I think that drives home the point that this is something that people can connect to and listen in and ask us questions if, you know, they have one after listening. So we definitely appreciate that.
0: Yeah. This podcast okay, so- has been amazing. Even for mm-hmm. survivorship, you did one on fatigue a couple of weeks ago that was So helpful. I mean, there's just so many resources, even from the caretaker standpoint. I was talking to Tina at the LLS at our chapter the other day, and I even said that they did an open house at our um, LLS chapter. And I had mentioned this to her. I was like, I just wish that they had this four years ago. So it's great.
1: And like Lizette said, with being a caregiver, you kind of get lost in the mix sometimes Mm -hmm. because you say to yourself, okay, you know, this, the focus is on helping my loved one get better. And getting others to help me get this loved one better, and I think that's why it's so important to have the resources around to plug in and 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 get that support from those around you. Here at LLS, we have the LLS community, and what it is, it's an online platform where people create their profiles, they log on, and they have these conversations, and they join these groups that are disease specific or survivorship topics, and they talk to each other. You know, yeah. they have a discussion amongst those other users to talk about what's going on and. We have a caregiver chat as well. And the mindset behind it is that none of us can do it on our own.
0: Absolutely. And it really was, it was not me fighting cancer by myself. Yes, I was the one receiving a chemo treatment, but it was a family effort. I mean, it took a village. It took my online, my virtual community, my social media community. If I wasn't chugging enough water, they were messaging me. They were posting on my timeline. They were reminding me that I needed to do it. And and they were reminding me too, if they didn't see me sweat, it was, are you okay, Katie? Oh, Katie, I'm going to sweat for you. I know it's a chemo day. And it just grew. And my, my husband and I, even my kids were in on it. You know, every single one of my... Um, my, my kiddos all have survivor bracelets. They all still have them. Dom's was like this cute little, little itty bitty. They're, what are they called? They're, um, they're survivor bla- bracelets. They're made out of like that. Uh, silicone? Yeah. And they, they're like looped, So, but anyways, they had these, um, the oh. ribbons, the purple ribbons in them. And my husband still wears it to this day. And we fought as a family. And even my son, Nick, who was only four at the time, you know, he would say like, mommy, why is your hair so short? And I would say, well, mommy, you know, mommy's just fighting a battle right now. It's all good. It will grow back. And he asked questions. But what's really amazing is now that he's older, he knows. He knows what cancer is. And he's part of the LLS. He sees the... Um, like the Night Walk. He's part of that every year. He was part of the Man Woman of the Year campaign. He understands that kindness goes a long way and that if we
1: are able to, it is our calling to help other people. That is our job. How did you talk to your little ones about your diagnosis? I know that you mentioned, you know, they would ask questions or you would worry about what they would say once they saw you begin to look differently. But how did you have that conversation as a mother my youngest was
0: very young, so he, he doesn't really remember it aside from seeing pictures of me with really short hair. But my, my older one, he just understood that mommy needed rest, that mommy was sick, but the doctors were making her better. And it wasn't ever this, this very long, drawn-out conversation with my son, Nick. It was very just short little, hey, mommy's sick. She's working on getting better. He would come over to me when I was resting and he would do things like put a little Band-Aid on my ports. I had a port at the time and he just knew mommy needed rest or he would come and he would lay with me and he just knew that mommy was fighting, but she was working on getting better. And then as I continued through treatment and even afterwards, he took on this understanding of why mommy gets up in the morning and works out. And even to this day, I explain to him that I sweat because I can Nikki, like I sweat because I'm able to, I sweat because I'm blessed, but I also sweat because there's somebody out there that needs me to, they need to know that I'm sweating for them, that I'm fighting for them. And I remind him, honestly, a lot of the time that at one time I was, I was too sick to sweat and other people really kindly sweat for me. And so that's just what we do. And in a way, I, I really think my my children are really blessed, and they might not see it now, but they they understand it's almost been it's almost been imprinted into their brain that you do kind things for others because other people really did kind things for us, and they saw that you know and Nick and he saw those dinners being dropped off, and he saw on social media people sweating for me, and he saw the fundraisers through the Man Woman of the Year, and he saw all of these opportunities and it is in him now that he does kind things as well and it's just one of those things I don't care what my kids become I don't care if they're doctors or lawyers or Instagrammers. I don't care what they are I just want them <laughs> to be I just want them to be
2: kind I want
0: them to be good people and I want them to just like make a ding in the universe a positive ding
2: definitely kindness above everything right
0: above everything above everything it's just so needed
2: it just when you see a little bit shown to you it just it goes a long way it does and i know that you're fortunate and blessed to have two beautiful boys thank you for sharing their picture they are the cutest
0: oh they're a um, handful
2: They always are, right?
0: I know. They they keep me on my toes, so yeah. They are cute though, but yeah. They are.
2: (laughs) And I know that you went through ABVD, and actually a lot of um, Hodgkin lymphoma patients that have gone through ABVD are fortunate enough to still be able to have children after the treatment. Mm -hmm. Their fertility has been kept throughout the treatment, And they've been able to um, experience the joy of having children after treatment. Yes. Have you met anyone that has children after? Absolutely.
0: (laughs) I actually just got (laughs) teary-eyed thinking of my friend Shannon actually is expecting her first. Her baby shower was just this past weekend. And she also is a Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. And um just gosh, what a blessing it is like so amazing when you hear those stories of, of people who are able to conceive after their their fight and I just that just melts my heart. So I'm so glad you mentioned that because yes, it is totally <laughs> possible and I've just seen it happen. So it's
1: very cool. That's great. That's cool. Oh, congratulations, Shannon.
0: <laughs> I know I'll have to send her the podcast and be like, I give you a shout-out. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And how do you feel that this experience, basically being diagnosed with cancer as a young mother, has changed your trajectory as being a mother?
0: I just, I can't even list to you the number of blessings that have come from cancer. It puts so much into perspective. You know, you can go through life and you can worry about the most mundane things and think they're important things. And then you have that moment where you're laying on a table, getting a biopsy done and being told that you have cancer and everything stops. And the only thing that comes to mind are the things that matter. The only thing that matters is the people you love um, and the legacy you leave. And for me, I just, I knew that that was worth fighting for. I knew that that I was blessed enough to be able to battle cancer and I was going to do it with a positive frame of mind. And that is one more thing that I just kind of want to talk about for a couple of minutes is your mindset, the way that you are looking at your diagnosis. I decided very early on that cancer wasn't happening to me. It was happening for me. And that something good was going to come from all of this. I just I made that a decision that something good was going to happen from that, that this whole mess, there was going to be some type of message. And so we I knew in my head while I was fighting this and, and through all of the, the diagnosis, the the medical bills, and all of the stuff that kind of piles up with being diagnosed. You kind of think to yourself, if you can just keep your idea on what it would look like and what it would feel like to become that that survivor, to have that last day of your treatment and to hold up that sign that says remission. And I remember that having, having that vision so clear in my head. I knew exactly what shirt I was going to wear. I knew exactly <laughs> where we would take our picture. I knew where I would be holding my kids. I, I knew exactly how. Remission would feel. I had it so clear in my head. And then what I did was every day I would wake up and say, I am one step closer to survivorship, I am one step closer to remission. And I would think of this as like this concept called driving towards daylight. And I would just think about it as like I'm driving towards this, this finish line. I'm driving towards, you know, that, that scan. I'm driving towards that remission. I'm driving towards this. And each mile marker around uh, there, it was just this idea of celebrating each step, each small victory, each, each treatment that I had accomplished. Every step was one step closer to where I wanted to be. And then a nurse had also told me to speak in present tense. And she said, because I I remember I said something to her the effect of like, I just really hope I can be a survivor one day. And she looked at me and she had the most serious look on her face. And she said, Katie, you are a survivor on day one. And I just was kind of taken aback by that because I've never really heard anyone say it that way. And she said, no from day one you are a survivor and there's this thought that if you speak in the present tense then you start to live like you are the present tense you just start to to feel more confident about the fight that you have and and to truly believe that it's worth fighting for and it gives you this little extra this little extra glimpse of hope and if you ask me that that's what people need the most it's just it's just hope it's just that one step closer that that driving towards that daylight of where you see yourself going.
2: When you're in the midst of getting diagnosed and yeah. you're in denial and you're in anger. And I think that's the hardest time to actually try to find that hope. Yes.
0: And for me, like I said, it was it was darkness and, and solitude and loneliness and I didn't know and I was searching WebMD and I was, I was looking for all these answers. I remember trying to figure out ways that I could keep my hair on my head and I just was, it was suffocating me. It was, su- the, the, the worry was suffocating me and all I needed was like this little light, just one little light and for me that light was Stuart Scott for me, that light was hearing Stuart Scott say, well, my one way of upping cancer was to just sweat. And I thought, well, I can one-up cancer that way. Like I know that no matter what the treatment feels like, and I know no matter how hard this is going to be, if I can just, if I can just one-up it just a little bit every day, just have that mentality of, I can fight this, I can do this. I am a survivor. I am a survivor. And to just keep repeating that. Um, that's when it that's when you start to shift just just look for the little light, just one little light. don't worry about everything else that's going on around you just just the little light
1: you bring up Stuart Scott, which once we said his name, I was thinking about all the amazing quotes that he always had because I yeah. remember him talking about his journey or him talking about life. There was always wisdom in what he said. One of his quotes he speaks about being a patient isn't a soul venture, and how the support is there and how the the mindfulness needs to also be there. And so when you say, I had to find that glimmer of hope and that nurse who offered amazing advice to say, speak of yourself as a survivor. I mean, you're surviving this day one. You're here and your, your feet are on the ground, like you said.
0: Yeah, there's something beautiful about that too. I mean, the legacy that Stuart Scott has left, I mean, how big is that? How amazing is that? Just to know that's what he gave he gave one person hope and so many but to me personally i am that one person and i truly believe that that's that's how you make an impact on people that's how you make a ding in the universe it's just one person at a time and that every story matters every story you share here every story on on your in your communities every single one matters and so when people talk about the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and why I ran for Woman of the Year, it is because those stories matter. It matters, the donations matter, the fundraising efforts matter, the research, it matters to, to one fighter, to one family, to one community, to one person, it just matters.
1: How were you introduced to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society?
0: All right, so I was introduced to the opportunity through a girl who was in my organization. As I had mentioned earlier on the call, I do online virtual health and fitness coaching. And a girl said to me, she worked for the LLS, she said, Katie, this is a great campaign. I think you should run. And I knew that there was a grant opportunity. If you raised $50,000, you could have a grant named after somebody or in honor of somebody who was fighting cancer. And my very best friend, uh, her cousin had passed away of leukemia, and I knew that that actually was something that she really wanted to be able to do for her cousin, M who had passed. And I said, you know, Tay, I think we can do this. I actually think we can raise $50,000 to be able to get the grant. And we took those 10 weeks, and through a really big t-shirt campaign, we ran on social media. We raised um, six, I think it was like $69,000 or close to $70,000. And most of it was through t-shirt sales. There were other small fundraisers there, but most of it was through t-shirt sales. That's big.
2: Wow. (laughs) That is big. Wow. Yeah. And the
0: t-shirts were so simple. They said every sweat matters. And then people would use that hashtag on social media and they would have their shirts and then they would tag their friends. And it just, kind of caught on caught like wildfire and it was it was incredible and even still my husband and I still we still have a good amount of t-shirts and we'll still donate to the LLS through those t-shirts
1: oh that's awesome that is
2: I love Uh, that don't you love that every sweat matters it's like very like catchy
1: Right. And it's very insightful because when you think about, think about the times that you sweat, when I'm working out or when I'm doing something very rigorous or when I am I, in the moment, I'm very frustrated yeah. <laughs> that I'm sweating, but I, un, but I also understand the importance of that. And I think there's so much, there's so much insight behind that simple statement mm-hmm. in relation to your story and what it was built from. And I think that that's something that so many people can relate to. Whether it be a cancer diagnosis or any other hardship in our lives, we will all experience a hardship. And I think Every Sweat Matters is a reminder that what you're going through is extremely rigorous, but you're getting through it. You're alive to experience it and to shift your mindset, like you said, from one to the other.
0: And just one sweat at a time, one step at a time, it is just a little action that you take today to make an impact on your tomorrow. That is what I think has caught on for so many people with this idea that every sweat matters. It's just you sweat because you can, you sweat for those who can't. Every single sweat matters,
1: period. Yeah, It's
0: kind of motivating, right?
1: It is. It's so motivating. The thing I love the most out of it is when you were speaking about how this diagnosis taught... I mean not that they weren't learning it from your from you and your husband because we could automatically tell that you're such you're loving people but I love I love when you mentioned that through what others were doing for you and your husband that taught kindness mm-hmm. to your to your boys and I mean when you think cancer kindness is not is usually not a word associated with that and I think that you kind of using this as a lesson, as a teachable moment for your sons to say, mom's going through something, but you know, look what the neighbors are doing. And isn't that really nice of the neighbors mm-hmm. to do that? I think it's such a beautiful thing. I'm a huge advocate for kindness. Yes. So it's, it's a beautiful thing to see that that's something that came out of this experience. Absolutely.
0: I couldn't agree more. And they're both... For what it's worth, they're both very involved in doing their own thing at Christmas. We have this chimney that is set up in our neighborhood and they collect toys and then they donate them to uh, our local homeless shelter and to um, the children's hospital. And our kids have done that now for three years and it's just their way of, of doing something and raising uh, um, funds and raising Toys in their case, um, for something that matters to them. And uh, I love that. And I know that I would have never started that with them had it not been for this, for what people had done for me. It just has a, a ripple effect. It just really does.
1: Speaking about legacy, because you mentioned the, the reason why we're here is to help others any way that we can, as well as our legacy that we leave, which is also you know, so important. What do you want your legacy to be?
0: Oh, I don't know. That actually is like one of those questions that really puts you on the spot. I just, I want people to know they matter. I genuinely want people to know that their story matters, that their fight matters, that when they don't feel heard, that somebody is sweating for them, that somebody is thinking of them. I just believe that every story matters and and every the reason you know, we do this, the reason that I share my story, the reason that I put it out there is to give people hope and hopefully give them encouragement to start sharing theirs un- unapologetically. I want my kids to see their mom making an impact, their mom reminding people that they matter, their mom reminding people that there's something bigger to sweat for. I think that's the legacy that I think is the most important to leave behind. It's just... You know, when you think of Stuart Scott, and I I hate to say it again, I keep bringing up his name, but it's that quote. He said, you know, you don't, (laughs) nobody ever loses to cancer. You know, you beat cancer in how you live and uh, like just the the way in the manner in which you live, the way in which you live. I'm not exactly sure how he quoted it, but I love that. I love that idea of switching from cancer being a win or a lose to Who do you become through the process of it? Who do you become through the cancer? How do you make an impact through the cancer? That's what I think matters.
1: Katie, and you know what? Your legacy will truly be felt by every person that comes in contact with you. We've been on this episode with you for not that long. I mean, we're about 30 minutes in, more than that. And you've already inspired me to look at my day differently to use my hours wisely to understand that our greatest achievement is to inspire and motivate not only ourselves but those around us so we thank you we thank you for what you're doing we thank you for what you've committed yourself to do and you know making that ping in the world like you mentioned before one that is felt and seen by your family by your friends by your your clients by all of those around us by the lls i mean we saw you and we knew that you were one who would share a story that could help others and here at the lls we too want to be that that beacon of hope to let people know that, you know, while they're going through what they're going through, we are desperately fighting to find our cure one day. And we believe that day will come. And so we thank you for sharing your story. And you have certainly inspired us to do the same, to continue what we're doing and do it bigger and better. and and. You know, make it something that patients and caregivers truly find as a helpful resource, so that when they are faced with a diagnosis, they don't have to face that themselves or with one or two others, but they can find in a they can find a community, you know, through LLS. I'll
0: be honest with you: there are quite a few things that we talked about in here that I haven't actually processed in my head in quite some time, and so it's been it's been good for me to even remember. Cause I'm four years out. I didn't I didn't have cancer, you know, just recently. You guys see my hair is really long now. I look incredibly healthy. You would never know that I was at one point incredibly, incredibly sick. And so sometimes I feel like things like this, just sharing your story and and just knowing that if one person listens to this podcast and they they are like, Thank you, you know, or I have hope, or I needed to hear that. Whether it's a caretaker or a patient then I feel like it's just that constant reminder that you need to tell it. You need to, to really keep sharing that story that survivorship is possible, that somebody is fighting for you, for sweating for you. The LLS is doing the research for you. They are, they are making sure that they are out there You know, on the front line of, of this battle. So even if you feel completely alone in your fight, just know that somebody's in your corner. Somebody is rooting for you. Someone is there for you. They are they are fighting it right alongside you. They might not be in the chemo chair, but they are fighting. They are not backing down from this.
1: Katie, thank you so much for sharing your story, not only with us today, but those who come in contact with Every Sweat Matters. You're doing so much for those who may be experiencing a similar diagnosis or simply having a horrible day. You're doing so much to motivate them thanks for teaching us how you've turned your cancer diagnosis into a lesson for those around you, how kindness is something that has grown out of it, how knowing that you need an advocate is something that you know that care that patients should also pay attention to. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode and sharing your story. And happy Mother's Day.
0: Oh thanks. Thank you.
1: <laughs> happy Mother's Day.